So tonight we continue on in the chapter of Romans that many would call their favorite. How many of you would say that Romans 8 is your favorite chapter in the Bible? Okay, well, some of you are like, oh, maybe. Is that a good? It's a good thing if it's your favorite chapter. So a few of you. Uh, we're on our third and final week in our series on Romans on specifically chapter 8. And unfortunately, many of us only enjoy a couple of verses in the book of Romans. And I think we dismiss all but a couple in this 16-chapter book because it's fairly dense doctrinally. But even a couple of reads can help us break down the big picture of this letter. You know, and that's a good thing to do, by the way, is just to read a book of the Bible, read it a bunch of times, and start to pick out the big themes as a first step in Bible study. You'll be surprised if you just slow down a little bit with a pen in your hand what comes out. So a quick big picture this week, since we spent a lot more time in review last week, since we were about at the halfway point in our series. So we said in three words that Romans could be summarized as follows. Christ in? Good. Let's try that again. Christ in? Good job. And I think that's a fitting summarization because we said that the slightly longer one is that Romans is about what the gospel does for? What the gospel does for? Us, right? What the gospel does for? Good. You guys, I'm going to make sure you're awake. And then what the gospel does in? What the gospel does for us and what the gospel does in us. Paul addresses what it takes for someone to be made right with God, to be at peace with him, to live the abundant life that Christ has for us. And simply put, the answer is Christ in us. This is an awesome book about the reality that we don't have to relate to God based on our ability to somehow keep up our end of the bargain and do good works for God. But rather, God's favor is not earned, but given to us by faith through the sacrifice of Christ, his resurrection, and the indwelling Holy Spirit that is given to us as a gift at salvation. So he said, again, in a little more detail, that chapter 1 through 4 tells us that the gospel declares God's righteousness and our sin. God's righteousness and our sin is the theme of chapter 1 through 4. Then 5 through 8, that the gospel creates a new humanity and a new family. That the name Adam means human. So the first Adam blew it and chose sin, and we have ever since, humanity has ever since. The new Adam, Jesus, brought a new family of which he is the leader. And we're a part of a new humanity that's to be about the mission of Jesus Christ that is restoring creation and all people into a right relationship with him. And then the third section of Romans, chapter 9 through 11, is the theme is the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. You know, you have all this talk where, where Paul is convincing through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Roman church, that, that obedience to God's law is not what gives us faith in Christ. He's addressing these young Jewish Christians who are most likely oppressing the Gentile Christians in the church, saying, no, you got it all wrong. You are justified by faith, not by obeying the law. And so in chapters 9 through 11, Paul kind of backs up a little bit and says, hey, but God's going to keep all his promises to Israel. They're still very important to God's plan. And then in the last section... We're assured that the gospel alone can unify the church. The gospel alone can unify the church. And he finishes in this last, last section uh, uh, 
on purpose because that is one of the major reasons why Paul writes the letter. There's disunity in the church. You might remember that the church at Rome consisted of Jewish Christians originally, just Jewish Christians, and then all the Jews were exiled from Rome for five years, Gentile and Jewish Christians. There were, uh, it was, again, mainly uh, Jewish Christians. During that time when they were exiled, the church at Rome grew with only Gentile Christians. So when the Jewish Christians came back, everything was different. And they wondered how someone could be in Christ if they didn't obey the Jewish dietary laws, uh, uh, the Jewish law of circumcision, and other such laws. So the big question was how Jewish does a Christian need to become in order to follow Christ? It created a lot of conflict in the churches. In fact, it was ripping them apart. Tradition says that there were actually separate house churches. There were Jewish Christian house churches and Gentile Christian house churches. So this was serious. Paul explains at length that justification, righteousness, and abundant life are found in Christ by grace through faith and not by works. And he spends a lot of time and goes into great detail. And the reason is, is we will naturally, saints throughout time, you and me included, we will naturally try to make it about us. Our pursuit of God, our ability or lack thereof to do enough good things to earn God's favor and love or at least manage it, maintain it. And the worst thing that we can do when we read some of these familiar passages is to gloss over it as if it's an elementary Christian teaching that we should move on from. We are to be fixed and focused on the love of Christ. It's to be our daily meditation. Can you work with me tonight and pray with me to that end? That we don't take light this passage that many of us have read many, many times. It's the heart of our faith. The lack of desire and pursuit of meditating and living in these passages is the reason why many fall away because it becomes about works and the danger for seasoned believers is they start comparing themselves to other people, they start comparing themselves to other churches and it is about the work. It's about the ministry. It's about pastors joke sometime and say, you know, if, you, if the love of Christ leaves the ministry, then it's all about nickels and noses. And that's true. And for you, it's the same way. It's about how big your home group is. It's about whether or not your kids follow Christ in the end, because that's all you're living for. It's about uh, how everyone else in the church is falling short, and they're not dedicated enough or passionate enough, and we become critical. But when we meditate on the love of Christ, it refines us, it humbles us. The Lord desires us to have a humble and contrite heart. And it's passages like this who make our heart of stone a heart of flesh. So we read it with that prayer in mind. I seriously want to implore you, implore you, pray tonight. Can you pray tonight while we get in God's word? This is something we do together. I'm teaching, but we do this together. Pray with me as I'm teaching, please. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, drive this into our hearts. Protect us from, the uh, Lord, a temptation to be given to white noise during this talk. I've heard it before. It goes in one ear and out the other. Transform us, Lord, once again, whether this is the thousand time we've read and heard this passage or the first. Please, Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active. Do surgery on us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So you probably noticed in this passage that Paul seems to be talking to himself, asking a bunch of questions and arguing with no one in particular. Do you get that impression? He's like asking these questions, and it's, it's kind of funny. But he's actually using a form of ancient rhetoric called diatribe, where the teacher tries to persuade students of the truth through an imagined dialogue in the form of questions and answers. Often this form of teaching uses an imagined debate with the partner who would raise objections or false conclusions. Now I'm making it sound fancy, but it's really quite simple. Any of you who have been around a little two-year-old, they go to touch the plug, and you're look- they haven't touched the plug yet, and you say, do we touch the plug? And they go, and you go, no. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. Less sophisticated. But where it sticks out the most is Romans 6.1. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Where Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. And that's probably the, the, the most vivid example of this kind of argument. It's very effective, and that's what he's using in Romans 8 here. And it starts using this teaching strategy. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So what are these things that Paul is referring to here? He's saying, okay, you can't be separated from the love of Christ because of these things. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what's contained in verses, what he already spoke of in verses 26 through 30, what we talked on last week. And he's, he's referring to two things. The first is, and we talked about this last week, this mysterious and awesome relationship we have with the Holy Spirit where we groan and we said that spiritual sighing where we can't put into words what's going on in our hearts and we just give ourselves to God, and the Holy Spirit joins us, and then uh, prays with wordless groans to God on our behalf. And Jordan McWhorter said this to see, that's sort of the advantage of leading home group when you're teaching that week. You can kind of go over certain passages, and then other people give you content to teach on, which is great. But we were wrestling with this, and he said, I think that when it says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans, it's him saying, That's what this one needs. That's what this one needs. He knows our hearts, and he identifies the needs in us that even we're not aware of. There's a mystery there, but somehow we know he's with us. It's not some academic relationship that God has with us. 
And we said that the whole Trinity is involved in our prayer life, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the worst thing we can do when we feel like not praying is not pray. The worst thing we can do is say, I'm not eloquent enough or intelligent enough to pray, so I'm just going to shut up when we're in a group. Because we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we, we went into detail last week, but that are joining us in prayer. It's not about what we say in prayer. It's about who's working in and through us and who's praying through us and with us when we pray. It's a partnership with God. He's doing the heavy lifting regardless of the content of our prayers. Always remember that when you pray. It's not about you. So that was the first thing. The second in verses 26 through 30, again, these things, these reasons why we're not separated from the love of Christ, he says that he communicates what our status is in Christ, that we've been predestined to be made like Christ, called by him, justified by him, and glorified by him. And we went into detail again last week. So these are the things that Paul's using as the basis for why we can't be separated from Christ. And he's been talking about these things through the whole letter. He's really just saying in many ways, Paul says some very basic things over and over in very detailed, dramatic, beautiful, powerful ways throughout the whole letter. What a good father, though. Any good father wants their kid to know that daddy loves them, that daddy protects them, daddy's for them. Uh, and a good father thinks through what might trip the child up, deceive the child into thinking that they're unprotected and unloved by daddy. When my kids were little, I would try to think through lies that they might believe about my love for them. You know, because that's a big deal for kids, you know, and I counsel people all the time who didn't get that from their dads. And so, and I know when kids are little, they see you as God. You're their first exposure uh, to God, dads. And so I would pray through and think through what they might think. I thought, well, maybe they think, dad didn't choose me. I was just born into this family. Dad wouldn't sacrifice for me. I mean, I'm just kind of here. So when they were about five years old, around that age, I would say, you know what? If I could choose, and if somebody said, you can choose any little five-year-old boy in the world or a little five-year-old girl in the world, here's what I would say. I'd say, hey, some of them have brown hair. Some of them have blonde hair. Some of them are tall. Some of them are short. Some are strong. Some are weak. Some are fast. Some are slow. Some are going to grow up to be the next president or a king or a prince. Some are smart. Some not so much. But if I could choose from all the kids in the world, I would say, I want that one. I want that one. And if then, whoever this they is, were to say, well, to get that one, that's a special one. You got to give me your house. You got to give me your car. You got to give me all your possessions. I'd say, hey, take them right now. Take them. Here's the keys. Here's the deed to the house. They're yours. And then I would say, because you're my Josiah. You're my Timmy. You're my Anna. The Lord goes way beyond my measly attempt to protect my kids from lies. We've already read that we're adopted and chosen by God. And for those of you who are adopted, you have the advantage of understanding this. Because your parents did sacrifice for you. Money had to be exchanged. Plans had to be made. Sacrifices were abundant. And for both the Roman church and us, God leads Paul to go through a series of questions. This imagined debate. 
arguments against why we might think that we're separated from the love of Christ and then responses to those. He could have just said, you can't be separated from his love. If there were any of us, we want to get to the bottom line. We would send it in a text message and say, you can't be separated from Christ's love. He doesn't do that. The whole Bible thinks of a million ways to say it, and he thinks of a bunch right here. Because we don't get it. We understand it here, but our hearts deceive us. So that's what he's doing here. There are five questions. I don't want to go as long as I did last week. I owe you guys some time from last week, so I'll try to go a little faster here. The first question is contained in verse 31. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So again, the, impl- the implied question is, if God who sacrificed so much for us is all-powerful, why are we afraid of opposition? That's the implication here. Who can be against us? They're, they're, this Roman church would have been thinking of opposition. Now, we don't know exactly what they were thinking, but they were thinking of specific opposition here. And I believe, uh, you know, as you look at one of the main reasons for this letter, again, that being the tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians, I believe that part of the opposition were those in the other house group. Those influential Jewish Christians who were saying, no, you have to go through all these dietary laws and circumcision. You got to do all that. You don't measure up. I think that was one, and then I think the other was likely the Roman church. I'm sorry, the Roman government. You have to understand, as it relates to the Roman government here, the idea behind the phrase, who can be against us, is a legal phrase. What's pictured here is a court of law, but don't picture Judge Judy. Okay, how many of you know who Judge Judy was? College, stu- wow. College students in my era watched it while they were eating their mac and cheese lunch or whatever. It was just kind of always on, you know. Uh, but anyway, don't picture Judge Judy, picture the Taliban. That's really probably what it's more like. If you were on Rome's bad side, then the sentence would be carried out swiftly. We read here in Romans 8 of trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, danger, nakedness, and the sword. The Christian then and, uh, then and in many places now face torture, loss of wealth, loss of family, homelessness, and even the loss of life. But whether we're talking about 2018 in Columbus, Ohio, or uh, in the 50s AD in Rome, God being for us means we have nothing to fear, even in light of the greatest opposition. I mean, these people were, they were going to lose it all in Rome for following Christ. There was a very good chance they were going to lose everything for following Jesus. Not only that, I mean, there was conflict within, in the church, and there was conflict on the outside as well. So no matter how foolish your friends, family, and coworkers think you are for following Christ, no matter how much you've lost relationally or financially, you and I have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. The second question continues on with the first. Romans 8, 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So the question logically here is, If the Lord is willing to give up his one and only son, why worry about our needs? Again, the Roman church had real needs. This wasn't just comfort and consolation that they needed. Social isolation, loss of vocation, loss of family, loss of life. They had real needs that would be in question if they walked with Jesus. That's why it's so important for us to know and reflect on the love of Christ. 
That's why Paul goes into such graphic detail here, because we miss it, we forget. And that's one of the reasons why the teaching, the topical teaching that I've given more than any other by far is simply titled The Love of Christ. I think I've given it now 10 times to all different ages and groups of people. I love to give it. If you want me to give it in any context, I will. All I do is go through the verses on the love of Christ, break them up into different categories. It's amazing. Those verses have fathered me. They've encouraged me. Many of them I've memorized because it's crazy how quickly we forget. How often do we focus and get wrapped up in the idea that maybe we haven't read our Bible in, in a while? And that's our focus. Or we're shocked that we haven't shared the gospel in a while. Or we're shocked that we haven't served in our family or community as much as we should. Instead of saying, well, of course, I'm broken. I do need Jesus. That is that he's my Lord. I can't do life without him. We reflect on who he is more to become who we know he wants us to be. That's, but, but it seems a little counterintuitive when we're the ones who are failing to focus on his love for us, but that's precisely what we're to do. It's important because our sin nature screams in our ear that God is holding out on us when a need arises. We become tired or hungry or bored and we believe that God won't be enough. And we live in a culture that's a little bit different from Rome. You see, in Rome, to say that their parties were debaucherous would be an understatement. Even the socially elite and highly educated would be in you know, these, these unbelievable idolatrous parties with uh, drug-laced wine and idolatry in the form of orgies and all kinds of other very dark and demonic stuff. Tolerance was not the name of the game there, even among the elite. Now, our culture today offers to meet our needs in what seems like a much more civilized way. Our idolatry to the common person is in the form of moderation, isn't it? As long as you don't have too much, it can feel fine. It distracts us from our need for a short time, but doesn't fulfill it. The more educated a culture becomes, the more sophisticated her idols. The danger in sin is not waking up to regret. Let's say you get just hammered out of your mind. You're gonna wake up and you're gonna feel regret. That will likely lead to repentance because you can't ignore the fact that you blew it, right? Repentance can come out, but the worst of idols are ones that mask as a real way to get our needs met and we wake up feeling fine. I can drink just enough to take the edge off. I can eat just enough to forget my need for God. Uh, I can entertain myself just long enough to miss the Lord's call to spend time with him or to pursue another person. But our desires can be met in Christ alone. When we think of our needs, and we're constantly thinking about our needs, aren't we? Right now, you're thinking about the fact that your back is a little tight. Maybe it's a little hot in here. You're thirsty. We are constantly reassessing. How am I doing? How am I doing? What does self need? What does self need? And our needs can be met in Christ. Everything from boredom to homelessness can be met in Christ. And the way we give ourselves to that is to reflect on the love of Christ. What do two people who are in love do? They read over the love notes over and over. When Becky and I were dating, back then we passed, we actually sent each other paper notes. It looks like this. And you, you scratch on it with something like this. It's, it's 
kind of like typing onto a computer or a phone, but it's the analog version. And so we would write each other. We were separated for a little, for a year in, uh, I was still in high school. She was in college. We wrote each other every day, just about every single day. We have dozens and dozens and dozens of letters. I mean, I went through hundreds of dollars just in stamps. And we'd keep those in a shoebox. And, you know, she had a little, her, never mind. She had a more pretty container that kept all the notes. Mine was just a shoebox. But you read them over and over. You know, you reflect, you think on the great love the other person has for you. I lost my place talking about Becky. She has that effect on me. Um, all right, we're good. We're good. So the third question, if God has declared us righteous, why feel guilty or unforgiven? If God has declared us righteous, why feel guilty or unforgiven? You know, the Lord never wants you to feel like you're unforgiven. He never wants you to feel condemnation. In Romans 8.33, this is the question. It says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's, God's, it's God who justifies. My opinion, again, I want to stress that my opinion, based on my understanding of Romans, is that they would have understood the concept of having a charge brought against them, again, both internally and externally. Again, they were called, uh, they, they were likely criticized for not being real Christians based on their relationship to the, the law contained in the Torah. And again, charges could be brought by the Roman authorities as well. I mean, Rome did kick out the Jews for five years and Christians were considered a sect of Judaism at this time. But what charges are being brought against you today? They had very real and serious charges. But the charges we, that, that come against us today, I believe, are in our minds. They're in our minds, and they're constant. Some of you, you've been disowned by your family for your faith, and you've been charged with crimes like foolish, disloyal, deceived, or worse. And your unfortunate and heartbreaking sentence doled out to you by your family is alienation. I know some of you are in that boat for your faith, and I'm so sorry. I can't imagine what that must feel like. Not, really, none of us can. But for others of you, the, the lies are in, most of you, the charges are in your mind, brought by the enemy. The first, and maybe one that gets glossed over, is the lie, you are independent. You are independent. It's a lie that our culture sells us with every commercial. When we feel weak in our faith, the enemy can lie to us and say, you don't have, you, no need to feel this way. You're self-sufficient. You can just kind of rebel for a while and be your own God, at least for a while. Then you can come back to God and repent. But you can be willful and kind of do your own thing, whatever you think is going to make you happy. And this is essentially the way the first Adam was tempted in the garden. Now the second Adam, Jesus, calls us to a new humanity where dependence is where our strength is found. Or maybe you, like me, can relate to the charge, you're incompetent. You're incompetent. You don't have what it takes. You don't measure up. This one can sink in deep because failure is a part of life, and failure starts at a very young age. Unless you're one of those parents or aunts and uncles who's given to plastic self-esteem. And plastic self-esteem is not from the Lord, and that's where everybody gets a trophy. Okay, it's a pet peeve of mine. Everybody's playing soccer. The whole team gets a trophy, even if they're in last place and always kick the ball in the opposite goal, you know? 
But if you were given a proper childhood, you failed quite a bit, and people told you that you failed. Uh, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm, I'm being serious as well. Uh, kids today aren't told they've failed enough. Uh, but the problem with this is it can sink in and stick forever. And it keeps us from taking risk. It keeps us from thinking creatively about what God has for us. It keeps us from taking risk on loving people. It keeps us from deep relationships. And it keeps us from finding joy in the adventure of following Jesus. When you don't have, because we do have what it takes. That's why John 15, 16 is my life verse. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. There's not a day that goes by where that verse is not in my mind. There's no greater competency than to have he who conquered sin and death, the, the victorious King Jesus living in you, being led by the Holy Spirit. You're competent to rule with him one day, it says in Ephesians. You college students are going to get a heavy dose of this in Ephesians. But we are going to rule with him one day. We could not be any more worthy than to be called son or daughter of the king. We win by focusing on him in us, not who we are without him. A huge lie, a huge charge that's brought against us in our minds is you are alone. Many of you hear that, and you know what? I'd love to tell you that you're not going to be alone in this church, and we're working towards that, but the reality is people are flawed, and you might be relationally alone, and I hope that doesn't last. That's why we do home groups, and we, we, we try to grow in the gift of hospitality that God's given this church. We, we want you to feel more loved here than any other place on planet Earth, but some of you aren't, you're not in that place yet. And Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And here's the cool thing about God's word. When we claim it, it's not like claiming a promise that, you know, uh, someone else tells you. When you claim a promise from the word of God, the Holy Spirit then illuminates and brings power to that promise in our soul. Because Hebrews says the word of God is living and active. When we declare a promise of God, it brings change. Have you ever done that where you're struggling? How many of you have done that? You're struggling and you get in the word and you go over some familiar promises and all of a sudden you're buoyed. I mean, you, you were down here and then all, all of a sudden you, you feel close to the Lord. You feel excited about things in your life that did feel like a burden before you spent time with God. How many of you have had that? Awesome. Good. So, the second to last question Paul brings up in his imaginary debate is in verse 34. He says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So the question is, is if Jesus who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death is standing before the Father on our behalf, why feel guilty or unforgiven? Now, we're not condemned for three reasons according to this verse. And it's a good summary. Actually, this verse is a good summary of the whole book, of all the reasons why Paul said we're made right with God. First, it says Jesus died, paid the penalty that we deserve. Second, Jesus is alive and at the right hand of the Father. And third, he lives to make intercession for us. He's standing before the Father on our behalf. Let's not gloss over this truth because it's huge. And we see it so clearly earlier on in Romans, in Romans chapter 5 that we read a number of weeks ago, verse 7. 
It says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're not condemned because Jesus has suffered in our place and he's declared us righteous. This is huge because I want us to connect with this. It would be an amazing, monumental sacrifice if you suffered in place of someone on death row, a repentant and remorseful murderer. Let's say they were repentant, they, they, they had changed, and you decided you were going to die in their place. That would be huge. There would be made-for-TV movies about you, okay? Uh, now, what if they were still on a killing spree? That's what Christ did for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no more condemnation to be had for the believer. Jesus took it all. There's no reason for condemnation. That's why no matter where you're at in your faith, if you're feeling prideful, meditate on the love of Christ. If you feel like you've got it all together, meditate on the love of Christ. If you haven't read the Bible in two years, and you've been doing anything and everything under the sun to fill the God-shaped vat in your soul, and you feel broken, don't meditate on those things. But meditate on the love of Christ. There's no more condemnation to be had for the believer because Jesus took the condemnation that we deserve on himself. So to feel condemnation is a sin of the worst kind because it says to Jesus that his sacrifice was not enough. Finally, the last question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No reason to restate that question. It's pretty clear, Romans 8, 35. This is the last question because all the other questions are really just different versions of this one. Again, if this were us in the, you know, summary tweet, you know, where you're only given so many characters, uh, you know, we would have gone straight to this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. End of story. But Christ is, or, or Paul is going into great detail here because the Holy Spirit knew that we would gloss over these truths. The only thing that we would really have to fear that would really harm us is to be separated from the love of Christ. And the question that's paramount to the Christian life, the one that brings us the most anxiety, worry, and fear, is there anything or anyone that can separate me from the love of Christ? I mean, think about it. For the Roman church, they were thinking, Man, I mean, I'm sacrificing everything. Is there anything that could happen that could take this away? Because if, that if that's the case, then I don't know if I want to make the sacrifice. Paul's readers and readers today look around and wonder about all the trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sore that, that all of us experience. Maybe not all of them, but at least some of those. And Paul says in verse 38 and 39 that he's convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. These verses are the climax of the chapter, and many would say, most would say they're the high point of the entire book, the entire letter. Nothing in human experience will separate us from his love. Look at the detail here. This is, this is like a beautiful mosaic of the love of Christ put to words. I love it. He says in verse 38, neither death nor life. So nothing in the human experience can separate us from the love of Christ. Now we understand what 
death means here. It's the greatest of enemies, and it can be very scary and dark for you and your loved ones because when someone dies, there's no one to mentor or disciple them through that process because there's no one that's going to come back from the dead. There's no believer that's going to come back from the dead and show them how to die with Christ at their side. It can be a very scary time when your physical and cognitive abilities are diminished. Maybe you can't even read the Bible. It can be a very scary time. And these Romans, death could happen two seconds from now. He's saying death can't separate us from his love. But we get that. I think we all get that. We get that. Now, why would he say even life can't? Why would he say? Because for many around the world, even saints, death would be easier than life, wouldn't it? For some of these Roman Christians, I think being tortured be better to just die, watching your kids starve, watching your family go homeless. I'm sure there were many who'd say, I would rather just die, but I'm alive by God's will. Life can sometimes be even harder. For us, it could be disease or sickness that hold on, and, and for many of you, heartbreak is more common than others because of the tough things that have happened to you. Life can't separate you from the love of Christ. Paul goes on in verse 38 to say that neither angels nor demons will separate us from his love. So nothing in human experience can separate us from his love and nothing in the spiritual realm that we don't see can separate us from his love. We understand the idea that demons can't hinder our relationship with the Lord. But I do want to say, as a side note, demons attack God's people. It's real. We have an enemy. And I've seen the enemy both overtly attack people. I've seen demonic oppression, possession. I've seen it. I wasn't expecting it, but I've seen it. But much more often, I've seen the subtle attack of the enemy where he's taken so many believers I know have walked away from God because of what is clearly a demonic attack, just more subtle. I know of one who said that the pull of a particular sin was so irresistible that they left their family, their church, all of their relationships, their home, their job to go pursue this thing. We don't, the spiritual battle is never going to become so intense that we can't call on the name of Christ. And the most important thing we can do is meditate on his passion for us. Because the devil hates the cross. We can't look at this as just some kind of simple elementary teaching. Paul also says that there is, or let me fall back a little bit here, got ahead of myself. We understand why he says here that uh, uh, demons can't separate us from the love of Christ, but why say angels? You ever thought about that? Neither angels nor demons can separate. Now, why would an angel, they're the good guys in the spiritual realm, right? Why are they going to separate us from the love of Christ? Well, many would say that angels here is referring to fallen angels, dark angels, demons. But I, I don't believe that, because why would Paul be so redundant as to say, uh, neither demons nor demons can separate you from the love of Christ. I think rather he's being hypothetical here and he's saying even something, if this were possible, it's not, but something as good and powerful as an angel, if they were able, which they're not, to separate you from the love of Christ, even they can't. Nothing. He, he's just going into tremendous detail again to make this clear to us. And then in verse 38 again, it says, neither the present nor the future can separate us from the love of Christ. Now this is key. This is key because notice what he doesn't say. What does he not say in terms of time? He doesn't say the past 
Because we, I think we, at least cognitively, we struggle in our hearts, but intellectually we understand, okay, I've been forgiven. Obviously, the Lord's not going to hold me accountable to things done uh, before I came to know Jesus. But what about the present and the future? What about for people like Joseph? We read his story in the Old Testament. Who it seems like things just went from bad to worse for him. He's kidnapped by his brothers and then sold into slavery to Egypt. And it just kept getting worse. The present and the future can sometimes be very scary, can't they? Particularly for this church and for us. But no matter how bad things seem to get, nothing can separate us from his love. And it, he finishes by saying, neither height nor depth. And this is important as well because uh, really... These words literally mean what's above you and what's below you. And I believe, again, my opinion is the reason why Paul said this is he was appealing to the Gentile Christians because they were given to astrology, idolatry in the form of astrology. It was part of their Greco-Roman heritage. So they would have been raised thinking about the stars and you know, all this spiritual stuff in space and what it means. And Paul was saying even that, these things that you see as the monster under the bed can't separate you from the love of Christ. That was maybe their background. But maybe you've been raised in a different belief system, atheism, humanism, some kind of Eastern religion. But whatever it is, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. It says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. That's all things. That's your depression in all things. That's in your broken relationship in all things. That's in the fact that you know your heart's grown cold in all things. That's in the addiction or the stronghold that you're facing in all things. That's in the fact that you, you know that you think more about your own personal insecurities of your appearance or your intellect or your competencies than you think about Jesus in all things more than a conqueror. Some of you are grieving right now and going through tremendous loss in all things. Some of you are here tonight and you're full of anxiety because maybe just being in a room full of people or being in a room full of people where you don't feel like your measure up is overwhelming to you in all things. Maybe your past haunts you because of things that have been done to you in all things. We're more than conquerors. Lord, we thank you for this teaching Lord, I can just hear Paul's tone in my head after living in this passage. Lord, where, where, where the Holy Spirit through his pen is striving and laboring for us to get this, would you illuminate our hearts, Holy Spirit, so that we do? Please, we want to be motivated by your love to love others. We want it to spill out into our communities and our campuses and our jobs and our families. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.